WBUR Podcasts, Boston. Does this mean anything to you, my fine musically inclined friend? Remy Dodoso. Are you a solfege person? Yeah. Okay. Remy Dodoso. That's that was pretty good. How about I give it to you this way? Does that mean anything to you? Nope. Never heard it. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's see if this helps. Any Anything there for you? No, but that's got to be from like a, I don't know. It's got to be like something from the the 80s, <laughs> like an 80s movie. Well, you're, you're getting there. I, I think you've probably noticed by now, Amory. There's something that's a little strange with Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and mm. I know, I know, Amory, what you're thinking. This means something. It's important. I'm okay. loving this, this <laughs> journey, by the way. I'm going to stop being weird now, I promise. <laughs> no, never stop being weird. <laughs> okay. Never. Well, yeah, I guess I really won't because I've been a little bit obsessed recently with a movie. The title of the picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, refers to an intriguing possibility. Mm, and that intriguing possibility is? Aliens. Specifically, the idea of coming into real contact with aliens it is a great movie, but we're not really here to talk about the movie. Uh, let's just say it's it's kind of playing in the background. Devil's Tower, Wyoming was the first national monument erected in this country by Theodore Roosevelt in 1915. In the foreground is one of the movie's main characters. Now Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary will share with audiences all over the world. Oh, Richard Dreyfuss is in it? Yep. He stars in it as an electric grid line worker who gets a flyby from aliens. But I'm actually still talking about something else. I'm talking about a massive, eerie geological formation that protrudes from the Black Hills area of Wyoming so strikingly that I am far, far from the only person obsessed with this thing. Dreyfus's character in the movie gets so possessed by this place, Amory, that his family flees him while he builds a replica of it out of mud and chicken wire and trash in his kitchen. They flee him because he's so annoying about it? Yeah. yeah, Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't go anywhere, please. And eventually he actually shows up in person at this place to meet said aliens, despite the best efforts, by the way, of the military. But Dreyfus and I are, are really just two of millions of people with this obsession. Over hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And this is a national monument currently different than a national park, but pretty close. We will get to that in a minute. And what's it called? It's complicated. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. I'm Amory Sievertson, and you're listening to Endless Thread. We're coming to you from the big screen of the 1970s, from a state my family used to live in, but also just like from my basement at my podcasting desk in front Mm. of a computer. (laughs) Womp womp. But technically from WBUR, Boston's NPR station. And we're bringing you a whole series on parks all month. 
And our latest episode is all about something Ben just won't shut up about lately. He keeps busting out the chicken wire and the mud. I'm in the kitchen. I'm yelling. I'm like, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. And everybody's just like, sure, okay. But I'm not the only one with this obsession, I promise. BBJ, can you explain this obsession a little more to me? No. (laughs) I mean, all right, end of episode. I don't know why I'm so into this. Like, it, it's like a skyscraper-sized rock in the middle of what has long been ranching territory. And in a way, this makes me, of course, exactly like Richard Dreyfuss's character in the movie. Um, a huge plot point in the film is that, you know, to his wife, to his children, to every, to anyone else, um, <laughs> after he gets a drive-by by an alien ship, he actually keeps seeing this thing in his mind's eye. He can't stop thinking about it. And that is really kind of what happened to me recently. What did the aliens do to you, Ben? Did they hurt you? Are you okay? We haven't talked I, about this. I can't remember. <laughs> um, but what I can tell you uh, in all seriousness is there are a lot of people like me, like I said. Hmm. Do you have evidence that there are a lot of people like you in this regard? <laughs> Most F, I do. The KOA campground near this towering rock plays the movie every night at 8 p.m. on the patio of the main lodge, and there are people who come just to watch the movie that involves this rock, like, under the rock every night. Like, last night when I left, there was probably about 50 people out there watching the movie. Shouts out to Jeannie, who works at KOA and says it's rain or shine every night. People sit out there, Amory, with umbrellas. But why? <laughs> again, <I> mean, <laughs> again, like Richard Dreyfus, I, I don't really know. Okay. But we're going to try to find out. I'm going to bring you a profile of this giant, mysterious spot of rock with the help of some Reddit comments. Because seriously, whether you're on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, or Reddit, this rock is constantly being talked about. On Reddit, you can find tons of threads about it in r slash national parks or r slash pics or even r slash weird or r slash mysterious facts. Are you ready for the first Reddit comment? Hit me. Devil's Tower National Monument, Wyoming. Okay, this was more of a Reddit post with an amazing picture. Um, so it's not that interesting to listen to. <laughs> um, I'm going to share a picture with you. Okay. Can you just describe this place for me? Oh, okay. Um, hmm. It's like a, it's like a big, a very, very tall plateau. I mean, like a mountain, but plateaued at the top that mm-hmm. has, looks like it is just reaching up from the earth. Um, it's hard to get a sense of how tall it is, but there are trees at, seemingly at its base, and it, the the formation itself is very curious because it almost looks like mashed wooden... potatoes. Does it remind you of mashed potatoes? No, no. It looks. Sorry, that's just that's me. <laughs> it looks to me like like a bunch of wooden planks. If you were seeing this from a distance, you wouldn't even think that it was made of rock. Interesting that you say wooden planks. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like some more info? Yes. <laughs> I got a guy. My name is Tyler Devine. I'm an interpretive park ranger here at Devil's Tower National Monument. I'm currently speaking to you below that 867-foot monolith that 
we know as Devil's Tower or Bear Lodge. There's actually many different names for it, but maybe we'll get into that later. Okay, immediately interested to know if interpretive park rangers do interpretive dance. (laughs) I mean, you're not far off. I like to say I'm the fun ranger, not the gun ranger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Tyler is quick to point out that his colleagues who do carry guns are also, he claims, pretty fun. But interpretive rangers are tasked with interpreting the cultural and natural resources for people to better understand and connect with the park. So I do the campground talks. I do 20-minute chats. I do guided walks. He's got all of the the public interaction vibes that I don't <laughs> that I don't possess. I love his his energy though. Yeah, as do I. He seems to have kind of a bottomless well of it. We're going to have our annual bat festival. It's going to include an inflatable cave. We'll have all sorts of fun activities, bat themed activities for families to enjoy. We'll have a, a kids a junior bat ecologist. Very wholesome. But what's the difference between a monument and a park? Okay, so the way Tyler describes it, the difference is some ways, you know, size. Like Devil's Tower towers over 1,300 acres of land. Um, Really the difference, though, is between an act of Congress, which you need for a park, and an act of a single president. They can utilize this thing called the Antiquities Act of 1906, and that's when we became a national monument. We are actually the first national monument by Theodore Roosevelt in 1906. And one thing to say is, in some ways, things haven't changed a ton since then. My family lived in Wyoming for a while, and one of the reasons that this geological marvel is so marvelous is that it doesn't have a lot of competition for attention in the area. Redditor Shankster1987 knows what I'm talking about. Hello, my name is Riley Shanks, and I'm from Detroit, Michigan. One morning, after driving all night, I got to this park. I had to use all the change I had left to pay the fee at the drop box because nobody was in the booth. I got out of my car to stretch my legs and look around when I heard a rustling just off the lot. I looked down and not even 20 feet from me is a bear. I backed away until it couldn't see me, then ran away, jumped in my car and drove off because bears are scary when nobody's around and nobody in the world knows where you are. I, too, would have noped right out of there. (laughs) Same. Speaking of doing things on a whim, though, a lot of various commenters online point to one particular story about the tower, which resulted in one man being the butt of many jokes, uh, the butte of many jokes. (laughs) Tell me the story of George Hopkins. Nice. Yeah, George Hopkins. The only guy to get to the top of Devil's Tower without climbing it that we know of. George Hopkins was a daredevil who, in 1941, decided to parachute onto the top of this isolated, flat-topped hill with steep sides, a.k.a. Butte. It was a whole thing. He was in the papers. There he goes. He served with the RAF and was a Dunkirk. Now, finding life at home too dull and slow, he maroons himself on this rock. We can see his parachute and George himself as we fly around the top with a camera, but he can't get done. So he landed on top successfully, got that rope ready to go, strung it down, but then that rope got stuck in all sorts of cracks. So now 
he was stuck on top of the tower. Started to holler down. You know, people started to see him up there. This guy it does not sound like he had a, a fully-fledged plan here. <laughs> yeah. Some people might call him kind of a, a, a an idiot, but, but he was a famous idiot. And he did make the place famous, too. Another thing I learned from Reddit comments about this place, Amory, helicopters, like helicopters that could, like, hover and land on things, not really a thing in 1941. I think even Goodyear offered this new technology, this thing called a blimp, to come and pick him off the top of the tower. And, um, yeah, none of that ended up happening. We ended up having Jack Durance from Montana come back down and climb his route that he established a few years prior to George Hopkins getting stuck up there. Jack Durance climbed his, uh, yeah, made his uh, climb of the Durance route, which is the most popular climbing route on the monument, you know, on Devil's Tower still to this day. You're telling me this guy who marooned himself and forced a bunch of other people to climb up and save him is a hero? (laughs) I mean, he was one of the people who put Devil's Tower on the map. And Shankster 1987 and his bear running aside, they do actually get a ton of people during the busy warmer months, including thousands and thousands of rock climbers. Tyler actually says they get over 500,000 visitors a year. And for them, that is plenty. He says that like many national park and national monument locations, the infrastructure of Devil's Tower as, you know, a public space is really strained and out of date. The visitor center was built six years before George Hopkins parachuted onto the Butte. Tyler feels like they're at a bit of a breaking point in trying to balance conservation with recreation. Even though he really does love getting visitors. Does Tyler have a favorite kind of visitor? He definitely seems to have a a least favorite kind, identified by Redditor Gnarl88. Some people out there actually consider them to be stumps from ancient giant trees, believe it or not. Oh, a tree stump is a good way to describe it. Mm. Like a really big tree stump. Yes. And there are a lot of people, Amory, who actually seem to believe this, put Tyler in the not category. We have no evidence of petrified wood or anything like that here. This rock that we see is called phonolite porphyry. It's very, very close to granite, except that it's missing a quartz. But yeah, as far as we can tell, you know, I mean, this is an old magma pocket. Maybe it could have been a volcano. There's actually four different accepted theories uh, from a geologic standpoint. I'm going to spare you the details because all of these theories are very um, geological. So is this still a mystery in terms of how this thing got there? Well, there are things we know. I would say, as far as some type of volcanic activity, that's that's the consensus. But also things we don't. Like, is it an actual spot of a volcano? Is it like a giant volcanic caldera filled with lava, but it never erupted? Is it a lacolith or a pocket of magma um, <laughs> that crystallized underground in this very specific way that created this cluster of massive rock columns only found in a few places in the world. There's one, by the way, in Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. One thing we do seem to know is that the top of Devil's Tower actually reflects where the ground used to be. And erosion, over time, 
has brought all of the other ground around it down, except for in this one spot. What? <laughs> yeah. Why in that one spot? Because the rock is rock hard. <laughs> Over how much time? About 50, 60 million years or so. If you were to look at it from a top-down view, it kind of looks like a bullseye where you have the hardest rocks right in the middle. That's Devil's Tower. Around that, you'll have these softer and softer and softer sedimentary rocks going out in concentric circles all around it. So, you know, it's been slowly eroded down. But that, that phonolite porphyry, that core, is just so much harder rock than, yeah, sedimentary rock. So this igneous core. Okay, so to review, old rock... Mm-hmm. Special rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Volcanic-related. Mm-hmm. Not a giant tree stump. Tyler hates to disappoint the endless line of visitors and internet commenters who bring this up, but yeah, that's that's right. It's super fun to think about that stuff, um, but I think sometimes, you know, on the internet, things can get a little out of hand with that, <laughs> and arguments can ensue, and, you know, any of our Instagram, Facebook posts, many of those comments threads degrade to it's a tree it's not a tree stump you know it's you know really is that true alas the tree stump thing will truly not go away as evidenced by a tiktoker i won't name why do people get so upset whenever you say that the devil's tower is a tree that had been cut down and this is just a stump i posted a few videos and proved without a shadow of a doubt that this is the case but at least there's this other guy whose TikTok has about a million more views. The indigenous folklore surrounding this site claiming that it was a trunk of a giant tree that was scraped by a bear has been turned into a lovely TikTok conspiracy theory, which seems just about as disrespectful as renaming it to Devil's Tower, but I guess that's not really my call to make. Either way, this is bullshit. Okay, a lot in there to unpack. True. TikTok, YouTube, Reddit, conspiracy theories probably can't be blamed on folklore, but the folklore itself is both varied and pretty fascinating. Like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it's connected to the big sky and brilliant stars you can see out there in Wyoming around this place. It is connected to space, and it is connected to something that seems to have been true long before this massive piece of igneous rock from volcanic magma was a national monument. This place really does draw you in. You kind of can't explain it. And there's something else I want to say, which is that as I reported this story out a little bit, I started to feel pretty weird about calling it Devil's Tower. And in the conversations I was having with folks, I stopped. And I started to call it by a different name, Matotipala. I'll tell you more about why in a minute. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy. 
Mining for a Green Future. Five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Okay, I'm getting a picture here. We've talked a lot about the annual tourist visitors to the rock and mentioned that it's a popular spot for rock climbers and people hoping to connect with the ecology or wildlife or even just its geological uniqueness. Yes, but our interpretive ranger, Tyler, also carefully acknowledges a whole other layer to this place. We have 26 different affiliated tribes that find this place spiritually significant. And some of these tribes, you know, put it on that pedestal of calling it a sacred site as well. The more we learn about this massive structure, the more we learn that its name, its purpose has been contested. A particular example of this was a set of court battles that pitted rock climbers and Native American tribes against each other over the place. Climbers wanted unlimited access. The National Park Service came up with accommodations for Native groups who wanted to use the space for long-standing spiritual ceremonies in the summer. Some climbers wouldn't accept that. Their appeal went all the way to the Supreme Court. And did it get settled? Sort of. The month of June is now a so-called voluntary ban on climbing, where Park Service folks ask climbers to stay off the formation. And NPS representatives say there's been an 80 to 90 percent reduction in climbing during that time. So it goes from over 400 people in a month to maybe 30. For his part, Tyler acknowledges that this arrangement isn't perfect, that climbers scaling the tower might be akin to watching a bunch of people clamber all over a cathedral for fun. At the same time, he says he's met Lakota climbers, too. Depending a bit on who you talk to, the sharing of this space is going okay. Hello? Hey, is that Bunny? Yes, it's Bunny. Hey, Bunny, how are you? I'm doing great. Beautiful day today. Where are you? I'm uh, nine miles from Mato Tipala, um, the northern edge of the sacred Black Hills, yes. Bunny sounds like a real honey. Bunny is a honey. She says she's the great-granddaughter of Chief John Grass of the Lakota Dakota Nation. Bunny sings Wolf Machichina Sugmanatu Lawampe. Um, my given name was Bunny, Bernice Bunny May. My spiritual name was given to me later, Bunny Sings Wolf, to remind me to uh, speak and teach and travel strong like a wolf teacher and not hide like a bunny anymore. 
Bunny helps run the website LakotaDakotaNation.org, and her mission in life seems to be bringing the many different groups that might be identified under the larger Lakota moniker together. Some of that, every year, happens at Mato Tipala. Mato means bear, and Tipala means home, or tipi, home of bear. And bear is a huge medicine symbol for healing. And so as calling it home of bear, there's a deeper meaning to that because indigenous people all across uh, Turtle Island here from many nations understood bear to be the animal that taught us about plant medicines and about our own ability to heal from within. Bunny used to work in a gift shop on the outskirts of the monument, and she says that whether we're talking the obsession of people in the Close Encounters movie, native peoples who have lived in the area for thousands of years, ranchers, or tourists, there really is something to this place that you can't describe. I've had a number of people visiting from all walks of life and all nations I've talked to as they visit here. They say, I'm not... I'm not a spiritual person, I'm not religious, but I come here and I just want to cry and I want to pray. I feel a a power here. And I always tell people, well, that's nature's art. As to whether we're treating this place with respect to its deeper history and its more recent history, do you feel like there's balance there? Yes, that is a beautiful question because, um, yes, we were able to conduct our first uh, Sundance ceremony there. Bunny says that a number of Lakota and Native tribe ceremonies, some of which lapsed over the last three years, are back in full swing. And that this is in part thanks to efforts of national park personnel in working with tribal leaders to ensure space for them to do various summer ceremonies. And do people share that perspective? Are they cooperative? Great question. And I think a thing I didn't really think about when I first started looking into this is just the sheer number of different perspectives and stories there would be in connection to this place. My name is Craig Howe, and uh, where I'm at is at the uh, a site called Wing Springs. And what I do is design and build this place, but I'm also the director of the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies. The acronym is CARINS. We founded this organization in 2004, and uh, uh, so we're, next year will be our 20th anniversary uh, as a puny little nonprofit here, uh, and the offices are located here at Wing Springs. Well, congratulations on almost being a full adult. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and Craig, are you uh, j- just so I, I get this right? Are you a doctor? Uh, I have a PhD in architecture and anthropology from the University of Michigan. Craig seems like he knows a lot about a lot. He does, especially about Lakotan culture and history. And an important point he makes is that saying Lakota is almost like saying Southerner or like Midwesterner because Hmm. Lakota covers a ton of different tribes that live in the area that stretches across what is now Wyoming, South Dakota, and a number of other states. So I'm a citizen of the Ogallala Sioux tribe, and 
I'm also a citizen of the United States, and this is key because I am not a citizen of the state of South Dakota. Because, important sidebar, Craig says the Supreme Court has put tribes and the country in a category above states, which have residents, not citizens. Oglala Sioux Tribe is one of, actually, there's six uh, Lakotan tribes in the United States. Five are in South Dakota. And Lakotan is one of three divisions, the other two being Nakotans and Dakotans. Craig stresses that obviously representing such a large and subdivided group of people is basically impossible. So feelings about sharing Matotipala are as various, Amory, as the names that different groups have called this place over time. And this leads us to another Redditor comment. Devil places, this, Devil Falls, etc., are almost always sacred places for Native nations. The names were given to push the Christian movement of manifest destiny and denounce Natives as devil worshippers. Oof. Does Craig agree with that? Yep. And I just say this every time. Anytime you see a landmark with the word devil or Satan or hell, it's probably a sacred site to American Indians, to some American Indian tribe. That's a sacred site. And that's what happened here. And white settlers did this to... To denigrate them. There are examples all over the U.S. of these kinds of names. And this is where things get really tricky. Because another story that gets told about Matotipala, including by our fun ranger Tyler, is that the Devil's Tower thing is actually a story about a phrase lost in translation. That basically, this guy, Colonel Richard Irving Dodge, named the place in 1875 because a Lakota guide gave him a description that sounded like bad god when he was really saying black bear. It was likely a mistranslation. This gets told over and over, and Craig rejects this version of the story. And Emery, when you look around at other locations on the U.S. map, there are a lot of lost-in-translation explanations for white settlers misinterpreting things as devil's something or other. It's practically its own meme. So I think overall, as we try to profile this incredibly unique, nearly thousand-foot place, this is what I keep coming back to. It, it really means all kinds of things to all kinds of people. But to everyone, it means something. That is apparent in the thousands and thousands of posts about it on Reddit and YouTube and TikTok. It is apparent at the KOA campground nearby where gaggles of tourists are like watching the movie every night. And it's also true when you talk to people like Tyler, who also watches that movie often and does the Bat Festival and so much more as part of the park services strained but positive programming schedule. I think Devil's Tower has a pretty special place in my heart. There's no doubt about that. I think, you know, when you come to Devil's Tower, there is a certain mystique power about it. In the summer months, of course, it's it's very busy and very hectic. But taking those moments in the mornings to just look up for a little while, I think I, I find myself, yeah, getting to that level of, of kind of transcendence. 
What does it mean to Craig? So Craig left me with one final thought. There's this interesting connection between this place and the stars. One thing to know, this part of the country, great for stargazing, by the way, which is probably part of why in Close Encounters, the starry sky features prominently. In fact, at one point, the alien ships in the movie basically appear as a constellation that starts to move in the sky. And as you might imagine, the Lakota were stargazing here before most people. And they used to stars a lot in their storytelling. For instance, some Native stories say that women who were fleeing bears and prayed to their relatives were saved by Matotipala rising out of the earth. And then they were put into the sky, seven of these sisters, which correlates to what we might know as the Pleiades constellation. But in trying to understand the significance of this place, there's this other mystery about Matotipala that Craig wants to solve. In Lakotan, it does have another name, Patehehi, gray buffalo horn. Craig says that one thing people may be missing is that the sacred place isn't actually the butte itself. It's a place on the map from which you can view the butte and see something else where the stars and the landscape meet. There are certain times of the year where that constellation, when it sets in the western sky, if you're east of the landmark, there would be an arc of locations where you would see the horn of the landmark and the constellation mirroring that horn. So it looked like two horns, two buffalo horns. So can you picture this, Amory? Like, one horn is the butte itself, right? Matotipala, the, the, the giant rock. Okay. And one horn is sort of opposite it, and that horn is a constellation. Okay. Which in Lakota is itself, by the way, called Matotipala. And Craig thinks that this special viewing spot from the north and east, only available for part of the year, gets at the real sacred nature of this place, at least for the Lakota. In Lakotan thought and philosophy, the buffaloes, they're called Pate. And and they're the Pate Oyate, the Buffalo Nation. Those are the ancestors uh, of Lakotans. And they live, the Pate Oyate live in the underworld and serve the spirits. And I just, this is uh, really symbolic that you have this connection then between the, uh, the underworld where this head would be of the earth and then that one horn would be coming up and this other horn would be coming quote-unquote, down from the uh, celestial. So we'd be relating the underworld, this world, and the uh, celestial world, the upper world. Whether you see it in the stars or in the rock or in the ground, Matotipala might have this drawing power in part because, simply put, It connects our worlds. And I think 
that's a nice thought to end with. Yeah, I agree. Endless Thread is a production of WBUR in Boston. This episode was produced by me, Ben Brock Johnson. And co-hosted by me, Amory Sievertson. It was sound designed by a guy whose eyes are glued to the sky, production manager Paul Vikas. The rest of our team is Dean Russell, Quincy Walters, Grace Tatter, Matt Reed, Emily Jankowski, and Samata Joshi. Endless Thread is a show about the blurred lines between internet communities, a fun ranger, and a gun ranger. If you have a story that you want us to tell, hit us up, endlessthread at wbur.org. Next week in our park series, a theory for tackling climate change that excites Redditors and makes conservationists nervous. I definitely encourage anyone that's thinking of filling Death Valley with water to visit first and see what's there. See you next week, friends.